much of a role does religion play in the war Vladimir Putin launched on February 24th in Ukraine? It's a complicated question, but the answer may very well be more than most Western experts think. Clearly, the current conflict has secular aspects. Possible NATO expansion, were Ukraine to join the Atlantic Alliance, would further weaken Russia. Perhaps Putin believes his people will rally to support their leader in a regional war, expanding the borders of Mother Russia. But another thread in the tapestry, one we hear less about in Western coverage of the war in Ukraine thus far, centers on the role of the Orthodox Church in Russia and Ukraine, and the ways that Russia's religion, nationalism, and historic spirituality overlap. That story starts in 988 AD, when a different Vladimir, Vladimir of the Rus, agreed to help Christian Emperor Basil II suppress a large-scale pagan revolt in exchange for the hand of the emperor's sister in marriage. This catapulted the warrior Vladimir's status, but there was a catch. He must convert to Christianity. And so, with great fanfare, he did. A mass baptism took place in the city of Kiev, and that event represented the unitary founding, the iconic act of Russian Orthodoxy's birth. From Kiev, nationalism and spirituality throughout the land of Rus grew mightily. Fast forward nearly a millennium, and Soviet communism in the 20th century tried to crush much of this religion, but it failed mightily. In Russia today, Patriarch Kirill, whose full title is Patriarch of Moscow and all Rus, boasts that Russian Orthodoxy is building three churches a day. Our colleague George Weigel notes that at Putin's 2012 inauguration, the Patriarch, quote, declared God to be the divine source of the president's power and described the Russian Orthodox Church as both guarantor and pastor of Putin's personal autocracy. Our guests on today's podcast are at the top of their game, and they bring decades of military, foreign policy, and peacemaking expertise to help us better make sense of how this horrible war is now unfolding in Ukraine. Dr. Corey Shockey is Director of Foreign Defense Policy at the American Enterprise Institute which she leads on the heels of senior leadership roles at the U.S. Defense Department, the State Department, and the National Security Council. She writes regularly for The Atlantic and was the foreign policy advisor to the McCain-Palin 2008 campaign. Dr. Chris Seipel is founder of the Sage Stone Group, as well as principal advisor to the Templeton Religion Trust, emeritus president of the Institute for Global Engagement, and senior fellow at the University of Washington's Jackson School of International Studies. He's also a former Marine who's always organizing and building new things, including a Rutledge Press book project published earlier this year on religious literacy, linked in the show notes, alongside some outstanding Twitter follows that both Corey and Chris mention at the end. In recent years, the Kremlin has developed a public doctrine of, quote, spiritual security, unquote, charging the Russian Orthodox Church to defend Russia from negative Western spiritual influences. The church cooperates with the Russian intelligence agencies as it preaches against moral relativism, as does Putin, who honors Russian nationalism and scoffs at the supposed spiritual and cultural degeneracy of America and Europe. As Chris and Corey reference, this religious nationalism directly impacts international affairs. In January 2019, the ecumenical Archbishop Bartholomew I of Constantinople, we know as Istanbul, granted independence to the Ukrainian arm of the family of Orthodox churches. Immediately, both the Kremlin and the Russian Patriarch denounced the decision. To them, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church was part of its canonical territory, or as Chris describes, the Slavic little brother of Big Brother Russia. 
Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, also jumped swiftly into the fray, arguing that the ecumenical patriarch, Archbishop Bartholomew, was an American stooge. So it could be that the invasion of Ukraine that began on February 24th, with all the devastation it is bringing, was driven not by fear of NATO expansion or a desire to acquire new access to natural resources or a sense that Russia's past glory is shrinking in influence, but instead, at least in part, by a sense of deficit in Russia's religious memory. The picture is complex, and today's guests help us see more clearly. With great thanks to them for bringing deep expertise in Russia, Ukraine, Poland, defense spending, and the role of values in international affairs. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Corey, it's wonderful to finally meet you. We share a common uh, heritage in our former advisor, Condi Rice, and some time on the farm at Stanford. And here we are. And by the way, we share a common heritage in Herbert Hoover, who I was born in Iowa, but that's not the common heritage. You have worked there, and I have uh, done research there. And Hoover, of course, was the first American to significantly engage Eastern Europe with the American Relief Administration in after World War I in 1919. And now we find ourselves figuring out how to deal with refugees again in the year 2022, uh, 100-plus years later. And I, I wonder, how do we get here, and how do we talk about faith and religion as a function of the decision-making matrix and the, the threat matrix and how we understand next steps? And by way of summary, Josh has asked me to position us a little bit. We are 14 days into the invasion or so, and to the surprise of many, the invasion is stalled, and the vaunted Russian war machine is not all that we thought it was, which is not to take away from the Ukrainians who have fought valiantly and continue to do so. And I guess, why do you think it's stalled, and what's motivating Putin in the first place? So, first of all, it is such a joy to be on this podcast. I have long been a fan of you, Chris Seipel. I like the way you engage conversation about faith as an integral part of American policies, because I think that's true. It is the thing I think most foreigners get wrong about American policy. We sometimes talk in a kind of clinical way about the role of values in American society, but those values are fundamentally religious values, that every life has dignity, that opportunity is the purpose of government, right? Creating opportunities for people where without government, those opportunities might not exist for them. And making the world a freer and safer place is a vocation as much as it is a foreign policy objective. And so I do think in lots of ways, people don't often pause to reflect on the things we talk about as fundamental values as America navigates in the world have their basis in the fact that we are a fundamentally religious society. Parenthetically, 20-some years ago, 25 years ago, maybe even, I was doing some work on the Iranian nuclear program and what it would mean for American interests in the Middle East and had an Iranian mullah share the perspective with me that 
he couldn't understand why the United States and Iran weren't allies because we were both such fundamentally religious societies. And in lots of ways, there's truth to that. So moving on to Ukraine, I think the reasons that, that you have already accurately encapsulated the reasons that the Russian invasion isn't succeeding. Their expectation that this would be easy and a war plan that was designed to look like the American military in 1991 or 2003 invading Iraq, right? Shock and awe that a government collapses under the weight of. And you actually have to know nothing about Ukraine to think that that's how this was going to go. Also, you have to know very little about the Russian military to know that that wasn't going to work. And parenthetically, it's reminding all of us who are security analysts how little we actually did know about the Russian military. Because I didn't think this was going to be as hard for the Russians as it is. Even stipulating the third major factor, which you also rightly emphasized, which is the amazing strength, determination, courage of the people of Ukraine. Well, that's a wonderful commentary. And let me return the compliments. I've always loved reading your stuff. And I have found you among all analysts and experts to be the person who most embodies what John McCain once said about our, our America's role in Europe, and particularly in the Bosnia crisis, which I think was the catalyst for his comments. But he said something like, we need to operate at the intersection of our values and our interests. I like to say sometimes, if you don't know who you are, you'll never know where you're going. And I think that's who you are as an analyst. And it, it always inspires me because the values are always close at hand, because what's the point? If it's just about interest, then, then we're no different than anybody else in this whole thing. And it's a curious comment about Iran. You know, that also plays into the conversation, and maybe we'll get to this, but apparently uh, the latest reports are that uh, Russia is thinking about blowing up the Iran deal and walking away from that, which then plays into the cost of oil per barrel and all those kinds of things. But I guess, you know, the interesting part for me, I mean, I'm a former Marine infantry officer, and I am fascinated by the fact that it seems like they're fighting the wrong war. And I think it's caught up, and this is just my two-cent tea leaf reading, but it's caught up in the title. Putin calls it a special operation, which is to say it's got to be quick, deadly, speed of security, and we're in and we're out, and it's done. And I think he expected this to end in two days. And therefore, he didn't have the logistical tail. He didn't have infantry dismounted on either side of the armored vehicles going forward with the tanks. He didn't have air ground coordinated. And now he's got egg on his face, which worries me, frankly, because he's got nowhere to go. And so how does this end for him? And let me stop there and see what your take is on that. But part of having nowhere to go is why he went in in the first place about this restoration of Holy Mother Russia, which I think plays a much more significant factor in Israel than most would allow. Yes, I think that's right. Putin is thinking of himself in grand historical ways, right? Peter the Great, Salvatore of Mother Russia, and, you know, that the Ukrainians have no rights to get in the way of that vision appears to be the derisory basis on which he anticipated this would go easy and Ukrainians would either welcome 
being considered Russian or would resign themselves to it. I do think that kind of messianic Russian nationalism and the way he has compromised the Russian Orthodox Church into support of that, as I have watched the last several years of Russian domestic politics, it looks to me like Putin maybe 15 years ago, maybe even 20, started to try and make the Russian Orthodox Church a source of legitimacy for the government, very much in the way that the Saudis worked with the Wahhabists in Saudi Arabia in the 1920s to create a legitimacy for a model that otherwise wasn't gonna have wide public acceptance. And it's shocking to see, for example, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church repeating all sorts of dehumanizing things about Ukrainians. It's shocking to hear a religious leader not consider every life of value and deserving of dignity. That is not the Russian people. And sometimes we always should be very careful about Russian people and Russian culture versus Russian leaders. And the same goes for China, by the way, having spent some time there as well. Two great cultures, two great peoples, two great literatures that we all can learn from. But it does seem that he has used this, whether he believes in it or it is a natural explanatory framework to legitimize his own internal power and his external action. But he does seem to believe in the traditional role of the czars, as you noticed. He, the czars used to protect the Orthodox in Serbia. He took on that role in Syria. We forget about that. Did he do that because he wanted to defend the Orthodox there, or does he do it because he wants a warm water port? There's more than one right answer to this question. Right, and he's no dummy. And then with Crimea, that was what was, I think that was a turning point. Again, whether it was completely transactional for his own purpose, or does he really believe this according to some of the philosophers or people that he allegedly reads? But he gives a speech in um, December of 14, where he describes Crimea as the Temple Mount. And it's the Temple Mount because that is where Vladimir the Great was baptized. And so, therefore, it is an inseparable part of Russian identity. And therefore, the Ukrainians are not Ukrainians, but they're just little brother Slavs that need to come home to big brother. I mean, I don't know what the mix match is, and I'm not a psychoanalyst, and it's always dangerous to go there, but I just think it's, we ignore that kind of possibility at our own peril, because when I heard him speak on 21 February before his National Security Council, my reaction as someone who lived in Poland and had some experiences with Slavs in general, my thought was, man, this guy believes what he's saying. He's going in. And then the next thought to where we are now is, I don't think he's going to stop. That's the point we're at where the security analyst goes, well, how do we think about next steps? So I share both of those conclusions. I actually had a very similar experience. I did not think Russia would pull the trigger and invade Ukraine until I saw that national security meeting. Because up until then, I thought Putin had pretty good prospects of getting what he was asking for, which is at least a tacit agreement that Ukraine wouldn't join NATO or the EU. 
that the areas under Russian control in Luhansk and Donetsk would become Russian and they would continue to control Crimea. And, you know, Russia would look big and powerful and dictating the security of Europe. That's a pretty good game just for a mobilization. But when I saw that National Security Council meeting and the way he was trying to make everybody force him to invade Ukraine, right? Like they were the one, he orchestrated that really weird meeting so that everyone was telling him reasons he had to do this and he was the decider. That was so Orwell-esque that shook my confidence that he was interested in reasonable gains that could be got at a manageable price. Your second point I meant to also address, I too don't see what de-escalation looks like here because I don't see Putin settling for anything less than what he started out to get, no matter how much he loses. And I grieve for Ukraine what they are suffering on behalf of Russia's aggression. To their great credit, they're not only being incredibly stalwart, but they're the ones who are making reasonable requests. And that's consolidating support behind them which will make it harder for Putin over time. I think the reasonable gains he could have gotten, none of us are going to press Ukraine to make now. Well, there's an interesting contrast between Ukraine and Russia. I mean, Ukraine is fighting a maneuver warfare and about to move into an insurgency. And the Russians are going to be very bad at that. They always have been. And the interesting juxtaposition, for me at least, is Zelensky versus Putin. And Putin as this isolated older leader who is 69, I think, and Zelensky, who is maybe 44, but always taking pictures with his crew, as it were, his cabinet, walking around the streets of Kiev. It's a very, you know, there seems to be a consensus building decision making. He's the, he, everything stops with him, but there's a lot more input coming in and the way that he spoke to parliament and the way that he's speaking to senators. He's no dumb bunny, and he's, he's just doing a fantastic job that will help him win in the, in the near term, in the long term. But the question is, how do you get to the long term from the near term? And one idea, I'd be curious to hear more about your thoughts about the fighting now, but one idea, the only thing that I can think of is, could we return to some kind of concept, it's, it's antiquated these days, but some kind of concept of a buffer zone where... Ukraine and Moldova and Georgia were had their own security organization, not a part of CSTO, the Russian Collective Security Organization, Treaty Organization, or NATO. And there was an agreement to, we're not going to surrender our weapons or our territory, but we will not join either side for 25 years. Because my belief, and this may sound crazy, but I, my belief is that Russia will, post-Putin, will become a part of NATO and that it will become the North Atlantic Asian Treaty Organization to include Japan, and it will balance China. And this is going to be a blip that the end of the century looks back on if it's handled right. If it's handled wrong, then that's a whole different situation. But how do you get to that near-term step and maybe that interim buffer zone that where Putin can declare some kind of victory and some kind of reimagination of European security structures 
And then we can just end the war because right now the war is not going to end. There's no possibility of a ceasefire. And every ceasefire or talk of a humanitarian zone is an opportunity for more Russian lies and more indiscriminate bombing of civilians. So I share your pessimism that there are pathways out. And I think it's incredibly commendable that I saw just before we started recording this podcast that President Zelensky is willing to offer a Ukraine that doesn't join NATO or the EU as a way to stop the violence, provided he gets security guarantees from the West and from Russia. So I think he's picking up your idea of trying to create a buffer zone. The problem, though, is that who's going to believe the Russians at this point? Moreover, Who's going to contain the Western desire to pull Ukraine to safety? You know, Ukraine wasn't in NATO already because a lot of us had doubts about their commitment to democracy and the progress they were making on ending corruption. I think that's been washed away in the last 14 days of Ukrainian heroism, where we're going to give them a lot more help. We're going to get them a lot more benefit of the doubt. And if they hold out much longer, we're going to want to pull them westward to safety. And so our guarantee may also not be trustable because of, you know, the way values and sentiments so strongly condition our foreign policy judgments. There's another factor to put at play too, especially if the fighting doesn't stop. And this is the issue of the no-fly zone. Because I think Western guilt will want to pull Ukraine in. But at this point, I'd be willing to bet you'd agree with this, but I don't support a no-fly zone. But on the other hand, it does set, because it's going to be World War III, that's the simple logic. But it does support the notion that Putin could then go take Kazakhstan or go take Georgia, because we're not going to do anything. We just told them we're not going to do anything on anything. So I'm a little concerned about that dynamic as well, if the fighting does not stop in the near future. Yes, I agree with both of those points. I don't think a no-fly zone is a particularly good idea for a couple of reasons. First, it's an act of war. And so we actually have to be ready to, and the president has gone nowhere close to preparing my mom for going to war with Russia. That takes time, it takes political commitment, and I don't believe the Biden administration has that political commitment. So we ought not to do that. And second of all, it's Russia isn't predominantly succeeding through air power. They're predominantly succeeding by the willingness to use artillery against civilian targets. And so unless we are going to dominate the air and plink every artillery piece, I think we help Ukrainians best by other means, getting them anti-tank weapons, getting them all sorts of weaponry that can be convoyed into the country and is being convoyed into the country. A second way we can help them, which again, I'm pleased and proud that we and other governments are doing, is committing to prevent an economic collapse in Ukraine. If I were sitting in a Ukrainian bomb shelter right now, it would actually be pretty nice that I could have some confidence I was going to get help to rebuild that apartment building to modern standards 
for what I'd endured. And the third thing is, as you know, Chris, I love using the tools of free societies to protect and advance free societies. And I noticed that Chef Jose Andres is not only feeding refugees in Poland and elsewhere, he's actually starting convoys to take food to the people of Kharkiv. What I think we are going to see is non-governmental organizations, humanitarian organizations, attempting to break sieges that the Russians impose on cities. And that's a very interesting and positive development because if Russia prevents them, especially if they prevent them by violence from serving that purpose, it makes even clearer to Western publics who the bad guys are in this and begins the mobilization of what free societies or accelerates it because we've already begun to see it of a willingness to shoulder burdens on behalf of the dignity and independence of the people of Ukraine. Yeah. Has that part surprised you? May I ask to jump in for a second, you know, from BP to Apple to Elon Musk to the swiftness, the nimble, you know, speed at which people jumped in quickly. I mean, that's just something that sometimes gets association with associated with various forms of religious expression without as much you know, hierarchy and the like. How did you see that? It's so beautiful. Civil society is the superpower of freedom. And, you know, if the government tried to tell companies they couldn't do this, they had to do this, there would be much gnashing of teeth. But the reason companies are doing it voluntarily is because, especially for consumer-facing companies, association with Russia is delegitimizing for them with their own consumers. And so they are responding to anticipated public pressure and doing virtuous things. Well, that's absolutely right, Corey. And good question, Josh. And you wonder why this doesn't happen in the case of China and the Uyghurs. There's no visual, there's no social media. And you have consumers who are very much taking charge of this and say, we don't want any part of it. You don't see the NBA doing that with China. I wish they would. But it's this, we're in this different age now where everybody sees everything all the time and it's for the discerning eye and the educated citizen in a democracy to exercise their vote with their wallet. As Corey said, it's absolutely beautiful and it could be that the war turns on that. I mean, do you, have you broadly seen this to be a, a bit of a waking up, you know, millions of people assembling in Sweden, in Poland and Germany taking people in empathetically to you may live in my house now. You know, there is a certain silver lining is the wrong term because this is a horrific war. But there is something that does seem to be a bit of a of a, an awakening to a new Cold War, maybe. I think that's right. And the, I think the awakening is a function of Russian behavior. Watching maternity wards get shelled with artillery is genuinely shocking to people's conscience. And they're seeing it all over the place, the ease of visual proof of it and the clarity of who the bad guy is and who the good guys and gals are in this. It's not a complicated dynamic. People don't have to be experts to understand this. And some of the other wars of recent years required 
a more sophisticated understanding and therefore people were more hesitant to make judgments and mobilize. But I think that's right. This is going to be different. And what we are seeing is the global norm of transparency. That's right. And I do think it's fair to ask a couple of questions before coming back to this point from Corey, though, is, is why is it that we pay attention? We didn't pay attention for the last eight years in Donbass. We did not pay attention in Grozny or Aleppo. And part of that is we didn't care. Part of that is we were sending a signal that the more you give ground to a bully, you can bully some more. And there's a real lesson in that in terms of deterring future would-be aggressors, which is why this thing is so important. But the primary difference, I would say, besides the social media factor of seeing this all the time, is you have a within-living memory among East Europeans, the yoke of Soviet occupation. And the Poles, who, whose politics is right of center, to say the least these days, they are the most liberal possible. They don't even have refugee camps because they've absorbed them into their homes, as you said, Josh. And why is that? They remember Katyn when the Russians came and rounded them up and shot 22,000 in the woods near Smolensk. They remember the Russian army coming under Tukhachevsky in 1920. They remember Stalin waiting on the other side of the Vistula as the skyline of Warsaw, Warsaw literally disappeared because he was watching the German Wehrmacht take out the home army. This is visceral for them, and they know if not now, they're next. And so they're standing up in a way that I think can re help us full circle here, remember the values of what is worth dying for. And so you know who you are, so you know where you're going. That does feel true to me too. And it's also probably significant that you still have World War II survivors in the mix, people who remember what actual Nazis were like and don't think it's the Zelensky government. It feels a lot more like the behavior of Vladimir Putin's Russia. And one quick note there, you know, to be positive for a second is in so many ways, Zelensky and Ukraine represents what we all yearn for, for our future. We know we're at a global inflection point regarding dictatorship and democracy. It's either going up or down. One's going up or down. There's no status quo. And Ukraine at its best, a Jewish president of a Christian majority country welcoming all citizens. And by the way, the diaspora to come home to defend Ukraine, this is, this is what we want for our future. In all of our countries, all these states that have so many nations and so many religions, we want to live with our deepest, most irreconcilable difference because the alternative is what we're seeing from Russia right now, from Putin. And so there's hope in that model if they can live through the night. Exactly. And I really like the care with which you are making the distinction between the Russian government and the Russian people because some of the bravest people during this war are Russians who are turning out by the tens of thousands to protest their own government. I mean, that kid, the young Russian tennis player writing no to war on the TV camera that was interviewing him. Like Russians know what the consequences are for these acts of civil disobedience, and they can be quite extreme. And they are nonetheless voting their conscience. It's not just the Ukrainians that are inspiring, as magnificently inspiring as the Ukrainians are. 
It's also the courage of Russians voting their conscience. You know, Chris mentioned 71% Christian people in Ukraine and a Jewish president and deep differences in living together with them. And I think the numbers in Russia, if I understand, are 41% are Orthodox. And then you've got 25% that said that they're believers of some kind. And there's a I can't remember the numbers exactly, 8% or so are, are Muslim and so on. But the Russian Orthodox Church, I know, Chris, you have talked in the past a little bit about, you know, a peculiar kind of faith angle when you have uh, corruption happening in the name of the sacred. And you've got Putin saying, as he did in 2013, just before the speech you were citing, you know, quote unquote, we see many of the Euro-Atlantic countries are actually rejecting their roots, including their Christian values, which constitute the basis of Western civilization. They're denying the moral principles in all traditional identities, national, cultural, religious, and sexual. And he talks about this eventually later, the split that happens in 2019 of the two churches. And the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church has got a, what is it, a, a $4 billion in assets that he's controlling and and a $30,000 watch he's, you know, pictured as wearing. Is there some, the faith angle is not always lovely and beautiful. The faith angle is sometimes incredibly, you know, corrupt and enmeshed. And I wonder how you see that part, again, of Putin, who's in the lead on all this after all. I sometimes like to say only the best of faith defeats the worst of religion. And faith is where you allow for the mystery and the majesty and mercy of God and religion is not a bad word, obviously, but it's the institutionalized form that seeks its own power and therefore is willing to work with political authority to validate their power and their violence. And so you have a historic connection between the Russian Orthodox Church as the Third Rome and uh, the Tsars. And Putin clearly sees himself as such. It was penetrated by the KGB throughout the Soviet Union, and they work hand in glove. To be fair, there's many good Russian priests. There was a letter, I believe, of like 300 signatures of priests, no bishops. But you can understand why a bishop would not sign that thing if they cared about their family and wanted to stay in Russia. There is an arc, but what you hear in the, in the quotes that you read me is this, uh, and this is what we can't analyze, as I alluded to earlier, but there's this blending of traditionalism, of Eurasianism, which comes from a guy by the name of Alexander Dugan, and this mystical Russian orthodoxy that goes back to 988 in the baptism of Vladimir the Great, which sometimes takes the form of this fascist guy named Ivan Ilin. And all of that results in another comment that he made, uh, Putin made in 2012, quoting Ilin saying, not quoting him, but deriving his argument from him saying, Russia is a spiritual organism, which is to say the collective, the whole is bigger than the individual rights. And this goes back to the, the social Darwinism of the turn of the 20th century and uh, the state as a living organism. That's a Friedrich Ratzel idea. He's the one who coined the term Lebenstrom, which then got hijacked by the Nazis. But this idea of land and people and church and indivisibility is there is a plausible case to say that this is what's motivating some of this decision making, at least in some of the inner circles. So the 2019 split was some would say is the straw that breaks the camel's back because the ecumenical patriarch, the first among equals, Bartholomew, in Istanbul, once known as Constantinople, he approves the split. And the Russian church says, no way. That now you are that is that's the one thing we cannot tolerate. That you can make a case leads to this decision making to force the issue, especially after years of not being punished for being a bully. 
it kind of all comes together and says, all right, now is the time to make Russia great again. Nobody's going to stand up to me. And I've got these very conservative, traditional uh, constituents who are with me, and I kind of believe it anyway. Or maybe I really do believe it. I found this quote. Let me read this to you. This is from Leo Tolstoy from a short story called The Raid from his service down there in the 1850s. And it's a short quote. He's talking about a character in the book. He always carries two things, a large icon hanging around his neck and a dagger, which he wore over his shirt, even when in bed. He sincerely believed that he had enemies. To persuade himself that he must avenge himself on someone and wash away some insult with blood was his greatest enjoyment. He was convinced that hatred, vengeance, and contempt for the human race were the noblest and most poetic of emotions. That sounds like a personality profile of Putin, even as the raid itself talks about the Russian way of warfare, which is attrition and not being able to fight the insurgent Chechens that were being referenced in there by Tolstoy. So there's, there's a lot going on here that we don't understand, and we have to be very humble in presenting these things, but they have to be accounted for. Yeah, but didn't John Kerry say that we were past most of that, that, that in the 21st century we weren't going to have such problems like this? How's the, how do you see that, Corey? I mean, in terms of history moving forward and uh, the roots being with us versus not? I believe that the arc of history only bends towards justice when good people grab onto it and wrench it that direction. My favorite verse in the Bible, Josh, is from Proverbs. It's prepare the horse for battle but victory rests with the Lord. As humans, we got to show up and do what we can, but then we got to let God do what only he can. We got to play our part. We got to play our role. We got to wrench it sometimes, as Corey says, and this is one of those times where we have to stand up to the bully. All right, so Chris Seipel starting to preach on Faith Angle Podcast. We can't have too much of that. Now, uh, Corey, you got to talk a little bit about defense spending. You know, it was 1960, it was 9%. In the late 70s, it was 5%. Under Reagan, it, it ra rallied a bit more, and then it's dropped now to under 4%. I mean, China and Russia together, how do you see it? How is American defense spending uh, going with respect to readying the horses? So since about the mid-1990s, the United States has been constricting the four-sizing construct for our military, believing that we didn't need to have the ability to fight two wars simultaneously in opposite, unconnected parts of the world. And that was a reasonable judgment to make in the mid-1990s. But the rise of a China that doesn't want the international order that we created, that wants the ability to change rules in ways beneficial to them and detrimental to others when the hallmark of the American post-war order has been that the small and medium-sized states are the main beneficiaries because we have consensual rules that borders only change by agreement, not by force, that we are all accountable for certain normative and legal behaviors, like not firing on hospitals in wars. And so countries that didn't have the ability to protect themselves and shape the order have had that ability in the American post-war order. And both Russia and China in their different ways are seeking to feel threatened by that order and are seeking to upend it. 
that means that the United States needs to reconsider the constraining of our military abilities. I personally think that it'll take about 6% of U.S. GDP to rebuild our capacity to what it needs to be. That's about a trillion dollars a year in defense spending. I think it probably also takes about another $40 billion in foreign, in money for the State Department to create more diplomats, to train them better, to invest in their success in the way we do in the success of our military. And we are fortunate that, as the United States has often been fortunate, to have time to adapt to changing circumstances because that's what free societies are really good at, innovation and adaptation. And our adversaries, at least so far, have given us time to make those changes and to better prepare ourselves for a more dangerous world where we need the ability to protect our country, to protect our allies and protect our interests. I agree with that 100%. Let me add a couple of things, though. Being a part of that 1990s experience as a staff writer at the National Defense Panel, one, I, it should assume the, the capacity to reform for how we organize to fight. But I think the most important part of the future of our national defense is, is something the military likes to call a common operating picture. How do you create a common culture across services, but more importantly, across the interagency? We wrestled with this once before, and in 1986, we created the Goldwater-Nichols Act, which was designed to have more interoperability among the services. But we need to have more interoperability across the whole of government and then all the elements of power of the nation, the civil society. So the military is just the starting point, and that's the easy point. The thing that government can control now is what does that common operating picture look like across the government? And I would argue that we need some kind of common education process in the same way that we did for the military. I went to school at the Naval Postgraduate School. I was a Marine infantry officer, and I was forced to hang out with Army guys and uh, Air Force guys worse. And then the Navy, which I had grown accustomed to because of the Naval Service, right? And the stereotypes get reduced in the classroom. This is the special operations, low-intensity conflict uh, degree out there at Naval Postgrad School. But the point is that's where common operating picture results from. But more importantly is the relationships. So they know how to call each other in the time of emergency with a pre-existing trust so they can get stuff done when the bureaucracy won't work. And our bureaucracy is a codified lessons learned from World War II. It is too old for the times that we live in, but that's another conversation. So I both agree with the idea, but acknowledge the degree of difficulty in making it happen. And I basically think no country can sustain a strategy inconsistent with who they are as a political culture. And who we are as a political culture is disputatious with checks and balances and people of good faith circumventing rules to get stuff done when it's important and you have agreement. And so I despair of us ever being able to be good at whole of government anything. But I will point out that when it matters to us, we can make it work. Actually, I think the Biden administration has done a terrific job organizing the economic and diplomatic elements 
of protecting Ukraine and penalizing Russia. I'm more skeptical of the military piece of it because I think, as you alluded earlier, Chris, they are projecting our risk aversion in a way that I think it's better strategy to make the Russians figure out for themselves whether they're going to have to risk fighting the United States if they invade Ukraine. But the elegance with which the diplomatic and economic pieces have been threaded together in support of the objective has been quite extraordinary. And I'm sorry, also the intelligence aspects of this. I mean, for the thing that might worry me most if I were Vladimir Putin right now is how much the United States seems to know about what's going on in my military and what's going on in the decision councils of my government. I could not agree more with that. It's all the more remarkable when you consider the debacle in Afghanistan and the withdrawal. You would never in a million years would have thought that this much coordination could have been done this fast across so many elements of power and with so many other countries. They deserve great credit for what has been done so far. And, you know, I never thought of it until you just said it now, Chris, but that's also the right criticism of the Biden administration for Afghanistan because they figured it out fast when it mattered in Ukraine. They just didn't bother to figure it out when it mattered in Afghanistan. Well, that gives us something to go on. Great thanks to two American patriots and people who are advancing human rights and democracy in the real world. And if there's any place, you know, we've got a set of listening right now. Where would you recommend we try something unexpected, not just the New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal? Where else should we go to to get a little clue of how to follow a little bit better what's happening? You know, there... Twitter, you know, for all that people complain about Twitter, it's actually been such an amazing resource. And following people like Rob Lee, the PhD student in war studies at King's College, and Michael Kaufman from the Center for Naval Analyses, Shashank Joshi, formerly of RUSI and now of The Economist, Mick Ryan, the retired Australian major general, who every day does a summary of what he's thinking about Ukraine. Those are all great resources and reliable resources on Twitter that I learn a lot from every day. I'm sorry, I left out the master of them all, the great Sir Lawrence Friedman, who is also on Twitter and giving us all a masterclass in thinking about war. Yeah, I agree with all that. And and then the flip side of that, of course, is is all the Ukrainians who are using Twitter. And if you go to my profile or Corey's profile, you can see a list of people we're following there who are sending these pictures and telling these stories. And and all the people that Corey just referenced are using them to collaborate and triangulate what's true and what's not true and getting the story out in a digestible way for the American audience. But I would go at Twitter 10 out of 10 times with the right people. And by the way, follow some of the wrong people too. I mean, it is fascinating to see how some in Russia have now turned Z, which is the symbol on the sides of the Russian forces to to prevent friendly fire, although that has not always worked for them. That's turned into the symbol of this this Russian invasion and it's Zamir for peace. And I think we ought to have a counteroffensive that says Z is for Zelensky, which uh, Jim Stavridis said the other day. And that, you know, there's ways to fight these things, but follow the people who, who 
don't agree with you so you can understand how they think and why. You can see consistency across both streams of, of thought and logic. Wonderful. Well, see those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for the time today to Sea Island and Kazakhstan. Travel well. It was such a great privilege. Chris, what a delight to finally meet you. Josh, what a delight to finally meet you. I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity of this conversation. Wonderful. Thank you, Corey. Josh, good to see you again. Look forward to seeing you guys in person some point soon. Me too. Bye-bye, my friends. Faith Angle exists to draw out connections between religion and the real world in collaboration with journalists. Thanks for listening.